All right, well, we're resuming our intermittent study of some of the seven ecumenical councils in the early church. The last time we had a class was also the last time we recited the Nicene Creed, I believe, in worship, and we talked about the Council of Nicaea, so I want to wrap up a few details about the Council of Nicaea and then discuss what happened after that and up to the next council, which was the first council of Constantinople. So, and I I have a couple of corrections to make from last time. Well, first is an addition. I mentioned in the first class that the Arians had these songs that they would sing or these chants that they would chant. Their, their Their main slogan was, there was when he was not. That was the heart of their confession. There was a time when the logos didn't exist. And that evening, Pastor Booth reminded me that the, um, the Trinitarians also had a, a chant or a song in response to the Arians. And that one you've probably heard, which is, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So that, that originated during the time of the Council of Nicaea. Um, Another thing I I should have mentioned but forgot is that um, who, what's the major group today that are the modern-day Aryans? Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses. That's right. Well, any any non-Trinitarians would be Unitarians. I think the churches you see around New England that's, that have Unitarian on their signs are probably just atheists. I mean, I don't really know if they endorse any, any sort of theism that we would recognize, but it is a form of Unitarianism. Um, another, a, a major problem with Arianism, and that's going to recur as we look at the continuing Christological controversies, is that if Jesus Christ is created... And if we worship Jesus, then we are engaging in creature worship. And any, any, um, any view that minimizes the full deity of Jesus Christ involves us in some way or another in creature worship. And that was a problem. David. Do Jehovah's Witnesses worship Jesus? Do Jehovah's Witnesses worship Jesus? Um, I doubt it, but I'm not an expert on, on Jehovah's Witness theology. Yeah, Zach. Yes, they do. Okay. They do. They give obeisance to Jesus. But obeisance and worship are almost used interchangeably in the New Testament. Actually, there's a little bit of a distinction here. Um, It might be a distinction about a difference. What the Jehovah Witnesses say they're doing to Jesus is the same thing that Roman Catholics say they're doing to Mary. Veneration. Yeah, and they, they do the same thing with images, which I hope we'll talk about in a later class. They say we're not worshiping the images; we're venerating them. Uh, then the correction I needed to make it, it does it gets a little confusing because a lot of these people have the same names, and some of the dates are foggy, even in the official histories. But I had said that um, two and a half years after Arius was 
anathematized and exiled. He was anathematized by the assembled bishops and exiled from the empire by Emperor Constantine. Very shortly after that, he sends a profession of faith to Emperor Constantine, not mentioning any of the terminology involved in the uh, controversy at Nicaea. And Constantine, not being a theologian, finds it acceptable and agrees to have him returned. And uh, apparently orders... Alexander, Bishop of Alexandria, who was the key leader at the Council of Nicaea, uh, he orders him to restore Arius, and Alexander refuses. But Alexander dies very shortly after the council and is replaced by Athanasius, who apparently tried to leave. Like I think he knew what was going to happen, what was in store in Alexandria, and he literally tried to flee the city, and they brought him back and insisted that he would be the Bishop of Alexandria. So he was installed at a very young age, uh, probably in his late 20s or at the latest early 30s. He was installed as the Bishop of Alexandria. Um, Constantine orders Athanasius to restore Arius to fellowship, and and Athanasius refuses, which already puts him somewhat at odds with Constantine. But then the the event I described was that um, Arius returning in triumph to the city, I was thinking it was Alexandria because the bishop was Alexander, but it's actually, it was in Constantinople. There was another Alexander who was bishop of Constantinople. Arius returned in triumph. He was marching in the procession to the church. And the night before, Alexander had been on his face in the church praying that God would take Arius or take him. Uh, and Arius, on the way to the church, uh, had, to, had some uh, problems, intestinal problems and died on the spot, which was very significant and made a big impression on the Christians at the time. Um, I also, the last time I asked several questions in the beginning that I thought we would get to, and we didn't get to any of them, so I'll repeat those questions because we can... We can uh, address those today, but so if the Trinitarians triumphed at Nicaea, why was Athanasius banished five times after the council? If the Nicene position was ratified by Constantine, why was he baptized at the end of his life by an Arian bishop? And finally, why were the Roman emperors predisposed toward Arianism? Um, So I want to go as quickly as reasonably possible through some of the history so you kind of get a picture of what was going on. Um, in, so Arius dies in about 335. Uh, actually, Arius dies in 336, but Constantine dies in 337. And shortly before his death, he, he's baptized by Eusebius of Nicomedia, who was a bishop in Constantinople, who was one of the main followers and proponents of Arianism. So, so Constantine was, was baptized on his deathbed by an Arian bishop. And when he dies, he leaves three sons who were imaginatively named Constantine II, who was in the far west, which is Britain and what is now France, Constans, who was in Italy and the, the central part of the empire and was only 14 years old at the time, and he was a Nicene, and Constantius who was in the east in Constantinople in that part of the empire, and he was committed to Arianism. So 
Shortly after that, Constantine II tries to invade the West, which is just like his father, Constantine the Great, had done before. And Constantine the Great won at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge after he supposedly had the vision the night before and conquered uh, Rome and became the emperor of the whole Roman Empire. Constantine II fails and dies in the attempted invasion, leaving Constans, emperor of the western part of the empire, and Constantius, emperor of the eastern part of the empire. So while this is going on, Athanasius was accused by the Arians of mistreating Arians, and this Eusebius of Nicomedia summons a synod at Tyre, which actually I think before even the death of Constantine, they condemn Athanasius, and they accuse him before the emperor, they accuse him also of attempting to cut off the supplies of grain to Constantinople, which would have been a pretty serious issue for Constantine because Alexandria is in Egypt, which was a major source of trade in the grain. So they accused him of trying to cut off the grain, and Constantine exiles Athanasius to what is now Germany, where he spends a few years until the death of Constantine, and while he's there, most likely writes his most famous book, which is On the Incarnation, which is still published today and available. Um, So Constantine dies. Athanasius returns to Alexandria, but very shortly after that is banished again by Constantius II. Um, And there there were at least a couple of occasions where the imperial soldiers invaded Athanasius's church once during a worship service, They burst in and started killing people, and he managed to escape in the confusion, and his supporters, I think his supporters had to physically remove him. He was going to, he wanted to stay with his people. His supporters physically removed him from the scene, and he fled into Egypt. And then another time, the imperial soldiers came and attacked the church, but he, I think, knew about it. I think they found out about it ahead of time, and he was able to flee. Um, But so... The second time, Constantius exiles Athanasius. He goes to Rome, and there's another synod in in, uh, Sertica, which pronounces Athanasius innocent, and Constans, who is a Nicene, sends a letter to Constantius, in some versions I read, actually threatening war if Constantius won't restore Athanasius. So um, Athanasius was reluctant to go to Constantinople, but finally he agrees, and he is received by Constantius, who apparently treated him kindly and sent him back to Alexandria. But in 350, so just a few years later, Constans dies. So now Constantius is the sole emperor of the Roman Empire, and in 355, he calls a council in Milan with 300 bishops, so it's a large council, and the next morning surprises them by showing up with an Arian creed that he insists everyone sign or be banished and exiled from the empire and threaten them with, with death, death and exile. Only three of the bishops refused to sign this creed. And they were Dionysius of Milan, who was the bishop of Milan, and the two papal representatives, who were Eusebius of Vericelli, and the improbably named Lucifer 
of Cagliari. The only reason, the only reason I mention their names is because I had to mention this uh, Lucifer of Cagliari. But he was, he was a strong supporter of the Nicene, a defender of the Nicene faith. Those three are exiled at that, after following that synod, and Athanasius reads the writing on the wall and flees into the Egyptian desert again. He actually spends a lot of time in the desert throughout all these exiles and gets to know a lot of the um, Egyptian monks who were living in the desert and writes a biography, apparently quite a popular biography, of one of those who he knew well who lived to be 104. Um, So that was in 355, but six years later, Constantius Constantius dies and is succeeded by the Emperor Julian. Now, Julian is known as Julian the Apostate. He was trained as a young man in the Christian faith, but he renounced it and converted to paganism and ruled as a pagan. But what's interesting is that it really does look like Julian thought the best way to fight the church was to just restore everyone and let the church, let, because he thought that the, the people in the church would just fight among themselves. So Julian, even though he's a pagan, restores all the bishops who had been exiled to their original sees. So Athanasius returns to Alexandria, and he's very popular there. The, the um, officers of the city apparently sent a party and met him outside the city, a hundred miles out in the desert on the way back to welcome him back to the city. And the, the people were very happy. Um, he was very popular there. Um, but then he runs afoul of Julian, who exiles, again in, exiles him again in 362. But that was only for a short time because Julian died in battle in 363, and Jovian, the, the next emperor, restored Athanasius. But he dies in 364, just one year later, and then Valens, Emperor Valens, who was an avowed Arian, exiles Athanasius again for the last time. Um, however, by that time, Athanasius was so popular that exiling him was politically um, dangerous. And so very shortly after Valens exiles Athanasius, he restores him. And he came back to Alexandria and lived in peace there for about the last um, about the last ten years of his life, and he died in 373. So that's a whirlwind picture of what was going on in the historical context with Athanasius. But um, one of the points is that it there was not it was not a clear triumph of the Nicene faith after the Council of Nicaea, even though only three bishops, one of, or uh, only th- three, three men, one of whom was Arius himself, were anathematized and exiled at the Council of Nicaea. So it looked like there was a consensus, and it was ratified by Constantine, who had called the council, but there was still a lot of controversy in the intervening years. Um, ooh, I, had meant to, I had meant to look at some of the canons of Nicaea, um, I wanted to look at some of the canons. So let's do, do that real quick at the top of your first page. So the, the Council of Nicaea produced the Creed of Nicaea, which we talked about last time. They also produced 20 canons, and I listed a few of them that I thought were somewhat interesting because it kind of shows how the church is evolving and beginning to uh, run its administration and so forth. Um, the canons generally are sort of 
administrative uh, laws of the church. They're not usually not specifically doctrinal. Uh, but Canon 1, eunuchs may be received into the number of the clergy, but those who make themselves eunuchs shall not be received. And so I don't know if you know this, but this was very, very common in the first couple of centuries of the early church for men who were inclined to take the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount of if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better to lose one part of your body than for the whole body and soul to be thrown into hell. Uh, For men who were inclined to take that literally, they would make themselves eunuchs. And even Origen almost certainly did this. Um, Now, that would be the sort of thing you might think, well... Probably won't have to deal with that uh, anymore, but just kidding. We're, uh, that may, may come up again, but it was such a, such a common thing that the council had to address that in this canon. So if they were made that by barbarians or by a medical, medical reason, they could be in the clergy, but if they made themselves a eunuch, they could not be a member of the clergy. Um, I'll just skip for the sake of time. You could read through some of those. Canon 3 forbids the clergy to live with um, a lady that they're instructing in the faith unless it was their sister or aunt or, or whatever. Um, and then a prohibition on usury among the clergy. The last canon, on the Lord's Day and at Pentecost, all must pray standing and not kneeling. So that's sort of interesting. I guess kneeling is a form of penitential prayer. So on the Lord's Day and on Pentecost... You're supposed to be celebrating, so, you, so they, they require them to pray standing. Um, okay, so basically by the 340s, so that's 15 to 20 years after the Council of Nicaea, it's becoming clear that lots of bishops are uncomfortable with this language of homoousios, which is same substance, which was used in, at Nicaea. Um, And part of the problem is that different words are used at different times and in different places for different meanings. And so a lot of what happens in the next 50 years is smaller local synods issuing competing creeds either to clarify the Creed of Nicaea or to replace the Creed of Nicaea to try to clarify the language surrounding the second person, uh, or, or the son, I should say the son. Um, the homoousians were the Trinitarians, this, the, looking at, at, at the son as the second person of the Trinity. But one example of the confusion is that there was another guy about 100 years earlier named Sibelius. And he's, the Sibelian heresy is pretty well known in the church, and he was what he believed in, or he taught what we would call modalism, which is that there is one person in the Godhead who reveals himself as a different um, representation at different times. So the one God reveals himself as Father in the Old Testament and then reveals himself as Son in the New Testament and reveals himself as Spirit in the age of the church but it's one person. And that view of Sabellianism is held today by uh, the United Pentecostals. 
And I found this out in graduate school when I had a friend who had, her father was actually a pastor in the Pentecostal church, and she had come to RUF at the University of Arizona, and she said, we, we called people Trinitarians growing up as a, as a pejorative term. Um, they, 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 were, they are modalists in that tradition. But Sibelius, his word was hypostasis. He said there's one hypostasis in God. Well, if you look on, the, on this back side of the handout, at the bottom on the left, the Creed of Nicaea, they say, those who say once he was not, or he was not before his generation, or became to be out of nothing, or who assert that he, the Son of God, is of a different hypostasis or usia. So Nicaea is saying same usia, same hypostasis, and they're using those words interchangeably. But one of the reasons that a lot of people are uncomfortable, especially with the word hypostasis, is that was the word that Sibelius used. And so sometimes they would accuse the Nicenes as being Sibelians. But that's an example. So one of the major things that Athanasius was working on in the decades following the Creed of Nicaea was talking to the other bishops and trying to get everyone who agreed on the principles at stake, but who were using different language to describe the same thing, to try to unify the language and, and get the, the church to converge on the appropriate language for describing uh, the second person of the Trinity. Um, one of the creeds, one of the, one of the regional creeds that was issued in 359, I've printed there, um, and I'll just read it quickly, but we believe in the only begotten Son of God, who before all ages and before every beginning was begotten of God, through whom all things were made, both visible and invisible, alone begotten, only begotten of the Father, alone God of God, like the Father that begat him, according to the Scriptures, whose generation no one knows except only the Father that begat him. But notice it does not say that he um, was, uh, it, it does not use the, the language of the Creed of Nicaea, um, begotten from the Father before all ages. And, and then they go on later in the Creed, but the word substance, usia, which was too simply inserted by the Fathers and not being understood by the people was a cause of scandal through its not being found in the Scriptures, it has seemed good to us to remove, and that for the future no mention whatever be permitted of the substance of the Father and the Son. Nor must one, nor must one essence, homoousia, be named in relation to the person of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we call the, the Son like the Father, as the Holy Scriptures call him and teach. But all the heresies, both those already condemned and any, if such there be, which have risen against the document thus put forth, let them be anathema. So there's basically four major categories of terms that people are endorsing to talk about the Logos or the Son. The, Nice, the Nicene Creed is saying homoousius, same essence or same substance. The semi-Arians, which this is, this is an example of a semi-Arian creed, that I just read, they're saying homoiousius. So there's an I in the middle of that word, and it means like substance. It's not the same substance, it's a similar substance. Jesus is 
like God. The Son is like God, but not the same substance. Then there's homoios cat energion, which was the phrase that was preferred by Emperor Constantius, and that means like in activity. So Jesus is like, or, or the, the Son is like in activity to the Father. Yeah, David. Uh, sorry. So, are you and I the same substance? Are we, in this sense, are we the same substance? Or are we like substance? No, we would be. We would be like substance. You and I are like substance. Yes. We're made but we have stuff. bodies. We have We're bodies. Stuff, right. We're made of the same kind of material. Right, the same kind of material, but not the same material. Correct. But we're saying that the God is the same material. We're saying that the Son is the same essence as the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the same essence as the Father and the Son. Now, the problem, and I was going to bring this up when we talk about Chalcedon, but the problem is that we are finite creatures who are attempting to use human language to describe the being of the infinite and eternal God of the universe. And so even Herman Bavink, who is a very, um, you know, much more recent theologian, says this may not be the, the best language, but it's what we have right now, and maybe later it will be superseded, but, but this, this is the best that the church has come up with to try to accurately describe what is revealed about the Trinity in the scriptures. So, and, and, and there's just no way to make earthly analogies that hold up when we're talking about the, the, the infinite triune God of, of scripture. Okay, so follow-up question. So, so to me, if I'm Yes, because there was a major element of subordinationism in the early centuries of the church where of, of saying that the son is not quite as great. He's not quite the same. He does not quite have the same glory and eternity as the father. And the Holy Spirit is not quite the same, not quite as great. Yeah, Nate. I was going to say, I think some of the two uh, comes from his begottenness from the Father, if he's not of the exact same substance. He's kind of denies his begottenness, eternal begottenness from the Father. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that would be part of the reason I would think that, that, that God would use that language, is because we understand that someone begets someone, it, it's, you know, that, that has a major implication for the. For the being in essence. Um, okay, so to wrap up, now we get to the Council of Constantinople. Um, in 380, Theodosius the Great becomes the emperor, and 
he is a convicted Nicene and finally ends 40 years of Arian bishops in the capital of Constantinople. And he wants to generate a consensus among the church for the faith of Nicaea. And in 381, he convenes the First Council of Constantinople where 100 bishops show up and there's quite a bit of controversy about, well, not controversy, but there's a lot of confusion about what actually happened with the creed that they published because there's no mention of the creed up until Chalcedon, which was over 100 years later. No, I guess 70 years later. But Chalcedon mentions the creed of Constantinople as if, it's, as if everyone knows about it. Um, and the, the, the creed that was published at Constantinople is what we know as the Nicene Creed. It's the creed that they're saying, this is the faith of Nicaea. So if you look at the side-by-side comparison there, comparing to the original creed of Nicaea, there's more specificity about the work of Jesus on earth. So it talks about mentions incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, this and, and, and so forth. But then substantial expansion of the section on the Holy Spirit. So the Creed of Nicaea just says we believe in the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed says in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son who spoke through the prophets. And then it adds a section about the church. So um, apparently Athanasius was the first person who explicitly defended in writing the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. And that starts to come more into play in the succeeding um, decades. And one of the things we're going to see, and they mention in the first canon, that they start to transition from this discussion about the relationship of the Son to the Father to the discussion of the relationship of the divine Christ to the man Jesus and how did that work what's the relationship between the divine nature and the human nature so that is going to start to occupy the debates in the succeeding decades yeah David it seems to me that if the reason for using the word same substance is because we want to be, we want to guard against diminishing in any way the, 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 the Godhead of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So we want to say they are they are like glory, they're equally to be worshipped, they're the same substance. It seems to me it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to then say that you and I are the same substance. We're made from the same stuff. We, you and I are made in the image of God. We have this we are equal in dignity and worth before God. Yeah, David. It's important to remember when we're using the language of same substance that God is immaterial. The issue here it might be helpful if you, you think of your mind being. If you say that Jesus is of a similar substance to the body, you don't have two gods. You, you don't simply have, you're, you're not just talking about the uh, degree to which one of them is greater than the other, which is a real problem in the early church. But you actually have two gods. There is only one God. And therefore, they are not in the same as us. I, I am materially the same as them, but we are two distinct beings and two distinct persons. When you're talking about God, you have to remember that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
So, and I just want to read quickly through the canons that they issued. This, they issued, I think, seven canons. Some of them are quite lengthy, but the, the significant ones, canon one was the doctrinal one. The profession of faith of the Holy Fathers who gathered in Nicaea, in Nicaea in Bithynia is not to be abrogated, but it is to remain in force. Every heresy is to be anathematized, and in particular, that of the Eunomians or Anomians, which they were the ones who said, unlike in essence... The Son is unlike the Father in essence. That of the Arians or Eudoxians. That of the Semi-Arians or Pneumatomachi. Now that was a sect that originated in Constantinople which denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. That of the Sabellians, that of the Marcellians. So that gets the Sabellians and making it clear that the faith of Nicaea is not the faith of Sabellius who was condemned. That of the Photinians and that of the Apollinarians. So... The last one, the Apollinarians, that gets into a more specifically Christological discussion, which is not directly a Trinitarian discussion. And Apollinaris was actually a strong defender of Nicaea and a friend of Athanasius, but he ends up being condemned because he ends up saying that Jesus Christ is a divine, that the divine. Uh, spirit or soul replaces the human soul so that Jesus Christ does not have a human soul. He has a divine soul and a human body. So it's sort of like 50% God and 50% man and that's going to be, that's rejected here and it's going to be addressed in more detail at Chalcedon. Um, So I won't go into too much detail about that. Um, I guess maybe the last thing before I close there was the question of why were the, why were the emperors so predisposed toward Arianism? I mean, Constantine, even though he presides at the Council of Nicaea, later sides with the Arians and is baptized as an Arian. Um, Valens was an Arian. Constantius was an Arian. Um, was there something about that profession? And there's a quote here from uh, John Leith, who's a, who's a leading scholar on the patristics, and I can't explain this better than what he says. He says, theologically, the assertion that the Son is only like God undermined the Christian community's conviction about the finality of Jesus Christ. The claim that he was like God presupposed some standard to determine whether he was like God and the extent to which he was like God. It furthermore left open the possibility that someone else, more like God, might appear. Christianity would be only one of many possible religions. If God himself is incarnate in Jesus Christ, then this is the final word. There is nothing further to be said. The cultural significance of the Nicene theology is revealed in the disposition of the political imperialists to be Arians. Imperialism as a political strategy was more compatible with the notion that Jesus Christ is something less than the full and absolute word of God because maybe an emperor also could be like God and show the people the way to God and be the divine representative of God on earth. Then, in a way, he could supersede Jesus Christ. 
So that, that was why one of the reasons why that doctrine that the sun was created was more popular with the uh, imperialists and the Roman emperors. So, so that makes it a matter of human pride. The emperor does not want to be subordinate. He wants to have his options open to be higher. And that's what the Romans were used to thinking of themselves as emperors. So it's pride's a hard thing to kill, I guess. Right, and the Christians who would say, we'll obey you because that's what God commands us but we're not going to obey you because you are God. We're going to obey you because we submit to the God of the universe. So that is a challenge to the Roman emperors. Any final question? Yeah, John. Was there another aspect of it where could, could they already see where like, law was overemphasized um, according to grace? So did it have an effect on how they viewed the gospel at that point or not yet? As I, per, I don't think I'm familiar enough with it to comment on that. I mean, I know Augustine is shortly after this time is when he's active and he's really focusing on the doctrines of salvation and dealing with Pelagius, who's coming out of Britain, um, but I, I, I guess I, I can't comment on, on that, like how directly it relates. I mean, obviously, one of the things they're going to say about Apollinaris is, well, if Jesus is not a human soul, if he's a divine soul with a human body, how can he save my soul? Well, he can only save my body. It, it, you know, because that's the only part of him that's actually human. So that it does definitely interact with the... Is there any tie? So it's like it's an attack on the authority of Christ, it seems. So is there a tie in between like popery and this Aryan way of thinking or or in the way that the church is organized and how it is, or is that also tied to different things? Um, it probably starts to I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that that directly is grounded in Arianism, and I will say, at least, at least up until this time, and probably for quite a while after, the popes were pretty good on defending Nicene theology. They're pretty solid on it, and Leo, in particular, wrote a, you know, something that's pretty well thought of, highly regarded down to the present day. Um, so. Yeah, at that time, the, the popes were pr- pr- still pretty s- solid on this stuff. I, w- I would point out Canon 3. Th- this canon became massively controversial because it is New Rome. The Bishop of Constantinople is to enjoy the privileges of honor after the Bishop of Rome. So this is something we're not used to thinking, like uh, which bishop has the precedence or wh- you know, which church has the precedence or which presbytery has the precedence. But if you think about it, there's no, there's no Archbishop of Tingsboro, right? There's an Archbishop of... Boston, and that's how, you know, with the Catholic Church being, and, and the Eastern Church being very hierarchical, they're saying in this canon, they're just putting Constantinople right at the top of the list, only under Rome. So that creates some tumult with Alexandria and Antioch and Jerusalem and the other formerly um, major seas. Yeah. Perhaps areas in better support of secretism, which may have been more
That could be just because it fits in better with with other other religions. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. All right, um, let's end it there. Scott, would you be willing to close in prayer for us?